Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. All right, we are going to jump into our teaching here today. Now listen, it might go a little bit long. I'm just going to be upfront and honest with you. I've tried really hard to make it short, but I'm giving you the fair warning right out the gate. So you can't say that pastor didn't say anything, okay? Uh, we, we started this series at the beginning of the month, and, and it came out of kind of an impromptu change. We had something else totally planned for November, and then the October 7th attacks in Israel happened, and the Holy Spirit, I couldn't get away from it, the Holy Spirit began changing some things in me um, as far as teaching goes. Just to give you a little insider baseball here, I, I plan my sermon calendar out a year in advance. That's what I do. I spend time in prayer about it. The Holy Spirit directs that. Um, but that preparation also allows me to pivot when I need to pivot. And that happened in October. The Holy Spirit directed me away from that. So you, you got to teach about Israel and the people of Israel and God's plan for them. And so I did. And I had no idea that we'd see some things we're seeing right now. I expected to see pushback. There's always pushback and protests when Israel goes on the offensive, but I did not expect to see what we've seen so far around the world and in our major cities and just the, just the rampant anti-Semitism and hatred just spilling out. I thought, man, what a timely, timely thing by the Holy Spirit to direct us to this. And so we started off the first week, we were talking about evil, and uh, we had a technical difficulty, could not hit record that night, uh, that day. We had an issue going on, and so uh, we, we weren't able to record it. I've gotten more requests for that message. So I'm going to go back and do an audio podcast with that, and it'll be out. We talked about the devil and evil and darkness. Why? Because there are some atrocities. Human depravity is pretty low. I don't need the devil to help me do the bad thing. You know what I'm saying? I can sin by myself. But, but there are some things that are so low and so evil and so gruesome, I don't know how you commit them without being under the influence of something dark and demonic. And so we talked about a real devil and real evil that's in this world world. And then last week, we spent time talking about what's called the Abrahamic covenant. This is the most important covenant in all of scripture. Uh, is God gives it to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And in this Abrahamic covenant, what God does is he goes, hey, Abraham, you're going to have an heir. He had no heir. He had no son. And so that was a problem. And God said, no, 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 you're going to have an heir who's going to carry on your name, who's going to have your wealth, that kind of thing. But here's the thing. He's going to have kids too. You're going to have a whole nation. If you can count the stars in the sky, that's how many descendants you're going to have. You're going to have a whole nation and they're going to possess this land I'm giving you, the land of Israel. Number three, okay, there's three of these, three parts to it. Number three, you're going to bless the nations of the world. Now how's he going to do that? Through Jesus Christ, who descended from the line of Abraham, Christ would come in, he would uh, die and rise again for us, bringing salvation and blessing to the world around us. Now here's the thing about God, when he makes this covenant, he does it with himself. He doesn't make it with Abraham. He actually holds himself accountable and makes this covenant with himself. And he invites Abraham to participate with it on one condition. You must follow and obey me wholeheartedly. Now, if you can do that, you can be a recipient of all the blessings that I'm giving you and the promises that I'm giving you as well. And so Abraham does. It's credited as righteousness. And, and really, the rest is history. Uh, go back. If you missed that message, go back and watch it. That is so foundational to everything else that happens in Scripture. I cannot underscore that enough. You want to go back and, and really dig in to Genesis 15. Alright, so shortly after Jesus dies and rises from the dead. Here's where we're picking up here today, okay? Shortly after that, things get, you know, from bad to worse, really, in, in Israel. In AD 70, uh, the Romans come in, they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Now, they didn't just do that for, for kids. There was a lead up to that. Seven years prior, um, there was a, a legal ruling that some Greeks were celebrating. They kind of went their way. They went to uh, the, the town of Caesarea. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because Caesarea was the town that Jesus kind of operated from. It was his home base of operations in the Gospels, okay? And they go to some neighborhoods around that town, and they just begin, without any reason, they begin walking around the neighborhoods and just massacring entire families. So what you saw and read about on October 7th, very similar thing. They're walking in, their whole families, man, they're walking in homes, they're burning homes, massacring 
praying, dads, moms, kids, everybody, and the Roman soldiers just stand there. They watch it happen. They don't intervene. They don't come to the rescue. They just stand there. So word gets to Jerusalem what's happened, and the Jews in Jerusalem go crazy. They riot, and they rush the garrison. They execute all the Roman soldiers in the garrison in Jerusalem. Now we got a problem. And so Rome responds by sending uh, their, their best troops down into the, the Middle East, and they end up doing the seven-year war, the Jewish wars, that culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Now, this changes Jewish life forever in two ways. Number one, it changes it forever because the, 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 the diaspora begins to happen from this point forward. The diaspora is what you have when there's more Jews living outside of Israel than within it. Okay? So that kicks into full gear. Number two, uh, Judaism goes from a temple-centric faith. So the temple was everything. Now there's no temple. So the synagogue becomes the source of all political, cultural, social activity within the Jewish community. You already have synagogues in operation. But now the synagogue becomes everything for the Jew because there's no more temple left. Okay? So it changes things in a massive way. From this point forward, Israel doesn't exist. All right? The Romans have it. The Byzantines have it. Uh, it goes back and forth in the Crusades between Europeans and Muslim conquests. Eventually, the Ottomans have uh, full control of the region. At the end of World War I, the Ottomans lose. And so the British come in. The British have the land. There's, there's no Palestine. It's just been under different controls, okay? And then on the eve in 1948 of UN recognition, the United States, led by President Harry Truman, calls uh, Ben-Gurion in Israel and says, hey, we're going to recognize you guys as a nation. Now, all of Truman's cabinet, all the experts said, don't do it. If you do it, it's going to be a riot. It's going to cause a war. We just ended a war. You shouldn't do that. Leave it alone. Let the UN take care of it. And President Truman said, no, we're going to recognize Israel. And he did. And then a few days later, the, the Soviet Union recognized Israel and the dominoes began to fall. And all of a sudden now, they have worldwide recognition. And almost out of nowhere, Israel pops up. So out of the ashes of World War II and the Holocaust, it reappears. And you can say, wait a minute, Pastor, that's, there's nothing special about that. The world was kind of sympathetic. We just got in the Holocaust. It happened, you know, and, and, and they have to have a homeland. And so they came up with this idea, and, you know, and America's kind of propped Israel up a little bit. Really, it's America that's kind of kept Israel where it's at. And you can tell me all that all you want, and I'm not going to argue a whole lot with you, but... What if I told you this morning that Israel exists not because of any of those points, but Israel exists because of the hand of God? And what if I told you that there were prophets who lived thousands of years earlier under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who spoke about Israel's destruction and return and that this return would signal the beginning of the end, that it would set into motion a timeline of prophetic events leading and culminating in the return of Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom. And that's where I want to go today. I want to go with this future with Israel. But to do that, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. Real teach-heavy today, okay? So back to the Old Testament, 722 B.C. The Assyrians come in. The Assyrians were in northern Iraq. They come in. They swallow the Middle East up. They conquer uh, all of the northern kingdom of Israel. I said last week that Israel split into two. The ten tribes that comprise the northern kingdom, and that's called Israel. And the two tribes comprising the southern kingdom are called Judah. And uh, it's the northern kingdom that Assyria comes in and destroys. The Assyrians, when they conquered you, they took all the people out, left the poorest of the poor uh, in the land, took everybody out, re resettled them somewhere else they conquered, and they took another people group they conquered from another, another part of their empire and brought them in to a different place. And the reason they would shuffle things around like that was because they figured if we settle this people group in this land, they have no ties here. There's no nationalism, no patriotism. They're not going to feel the need to want to kind of rebel. So we're going to put them over here and that group's going to go over here and that's what they did. And what happened was you had Jews who, the few who 
are left who would marry with these other outside people groups who were brought in, these Gentile groups, and they would marry and they had kids and they, they had uh, a little syncretism where that began to take place. So Judaism was kind of sprinkled with different types of faiths and ideologies. And so what happens over time is you have the creation of the Samaritan race. You read about in the Gospels. The Samaritans were kind of like, they were viewed as half-breeds or kind of Jewish, kind of not Jewish. They have some beliefs that are similar, but they're different. If you look at the woman in the well, um, she tells Jesus, hey, we worship on this mountain. We believe this and that. And Jesus says, yeah, I, I heard that, but uh, you don't know what you're worshiping. I worship in spirit. And, and he begins to talk about worshiping in spirit and in truth and how true worship looks. It's because the Samaritan race was very similar yet different. It's because of the Assyrians. Okay? In Judah, they last a little bit longer. 586 B.C., uh, the Babylonians come in. Now, Babylonians have already come to Judah two other times. There's three waves of exiles that leave the area. The last one was in 586 B.C. Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple's destroyed, okay? And, and, the, and they leave Jews in the land who are the poorest of the poor, yet again. But unlike the Assyrians, they don't resettle other people groups there. So the Jews who are left in Judah truly are Jews. There's not a lot of mixing of anything happening. All right? One of these Jews carried into exile in the second wave in 597 B.C. is a priest named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel has this vision of dry bones. I want to read this to you. Ezekiel 37, uh, 4. Then he, says God, speaking to Ezekiel here, then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin and I'll put breath into you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse number seven. So I spoke the message as he told me and suddenly as I spoke there was a rattling noise all across the valley and the bones of each body came together and they attached themselves as complete skeletons and as I watched muscles and flesh formed over the bones and the skin formed to cover their bodies but they still had no breath in them. There's a process that happens. The bones don't spring to life right away. It's progressive. There's flesh, there's muscles, there's skin. And then finally, but I'm not going to read this morning, is he calls the four winds as God tells him to, and the breath of life is breathed in, and they stand up with their vast army, Ezekiel says. The, the idea behind this is that the restoration and return of Israel would be progressive. It's not happening all at once, but it will happen in stages. Okay? So it starts with the Persians who conquered Babylon, and it's a, a, a an emperor named Cyrus who says, you know what? All the people that were conquered by the Babylonians, you may go back to your homeland if you so choose. So a lot of Jews begin to go back. That's, that's the start of this progressive return to Israel. And it begins to happen in stages throughout history. One of the biggest stages was at the, the end of the 19th century. You had mass immigration of Jews fleeing persecution in Europe to Ottoman-controlled uh, Palestine, Israel, that area. In 1948, there were one million Holocaust survivors who flocked to Israel. Hey, we've survived. We're getting out of here. We're going, we're going to our homeland. And then, of course, you have the, the creation of Israel right after that. At the end of the Cold War, uh, when, that, when, the, when the Cold War ended, from that point to today, close to 2 million Jews have immigrated to Israel from around the world. And you say, Pastor, that's not a whole lot. Well, there's only 9-some-odd million people in Israel, so there's not a whole lot in Israel to begin with. So when you think about those sheer numbers, that is a lot of movement coming back to the land. What is God doing? God has been progressively in stages gathering His people back to the land of Israel. Look at verse number 11. Then he, again this is God speaking to Ezekiel, then he said to me, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. And they're saying we've become old, dry bones, and all hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. And I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And when this happens, O my people, you'll know that I am the Lord. And I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return home to your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. 
So Israel's return, the nation is back from the dead in a very miraculous way. Uh, nobody thought you'd see Israel be reconstituted yet again, and yet it has been. And that is the mark of a shift. There is a shift that's taking place. It's the first major event we'll really talk about here today. That's why I'm spending some time with this. It's the mark of a shift in, in some prophetic events that will now begin to, to culminate in the return of Christ. You know, there's, there's Jewish folks who are flocking back to Israel for all kinds of reasons, but largely because, if you think about it, there's no other place on the planet that's safe. I mean, in America had been for a long time, but right now, if you look at our major cities and some things that are happening, I don't know if, if, if you could say that in certain pockets of our country, right? So, I mean, even, even here, we're, we're seeing some trouble. But in Israel, there's safety there, right? And so they're, they're, they're flocking back. Many of them are. But with Israel's return, this new era opens up, and, and, and before we jump into it, I want to establish a couple of ground rules. So if you were here with us last year for our Daniel series, I, I, before we got to all the apocalyptic stuff, I said, hey, we got some ground rules we have to live by here. Why? Because if you don't follow these ground rules, you'll, you'll, you'll get on the, the, the train to crazy town. You have to watch some things. It's very easy with apocalyptic prophecy and literature to go way off the deep end and obsess over stuff. We don't want to do that. So here's our ground rules for talking about the end times and, and apocalyptic prophecy and literature like Daniel and Revelation. The ground rules are this. Number one, you have to be cautious. Be cautious. Why? Because we don't know a whole lot. The end times theology is called eschatology, okay? It is the least known and understood of all the doctrines, okay? Of all theological doctrines. Don't be dogmatic. There's a lot of different ideas about the end, and I'm going to tell you this morning that every Everybody who has different positions will be surprised in multiple ways because we just don't know. And if you think you know, I'm just here to tell you as your pastor, you don't know, okay? There's a lot we don't know. And so don't, don't just jump into things, be cautious. Number two, understand imagery. Understand imagery. Why? Because a lot of apocalyptic prophecy is metaphor. It's not literal. There's a lot of symbolism there. And you want to be careful that you don't take things in a literal sense when it shouldn't be. Number three, Understand numbers. Numbers are often symbolic as well. Now, we're going to look at a case here this morning in a little bit where there's, there's an exception to the rule. And we're going to take one of these pretty literal. But for the most part, they are symbolic in nature. Number four, the final one, understand context. You're living in the 21st century. And the guys who wrote this were not. So they're, they're recording things as best they understand uh, what they're seeing. And with language and terms they're familiar with, which may not be familiar to you. So you got to remember that kind of stuff as you read through like Revelation and Daniel and that kind of thing. Because you live in a different time period. So try to put yourself in their shoes. Okay? The last thing I'll tell you about this morning before I jump into this um, is I'm skipping a lot of stuff. Okay? So you're going to say, Pastor, you didn't say this, and you didn't say that, and you left this part out. And you're absolutely right. I did. I left a lot out. Why? Because for our purposes today... I'm only focusing on Israel. I'm not going to focus on everything else. So you're right, I'm leaving a lot of stuff out. I'm only going to focus on major events which have to deal specifically with Israel itself. Okay? So just keep that in mind. Don't, don't come hunt me down when church is over and tell me all the things I missed. I'm admitting to you now, I'm not covering everything. Okay? And we only have a small window of time to deal with. The first major event, after Israel is created and, and, and it's come to existence, uh, we have all these things. Christ talked about in Matthew 24. Hey, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and persecution and false teaching and the love of most will grow cold. 100%, all that's true. And then the next major event that really deals with Israel itself, again, that's the key here, is that there's this figure who rises that in Christian theology we call the Antichrist, okay? And the Antichrist rises and he makes this peace with Israel, makes a peace with Israel. So during the Babylonian exile, Daniel Daniel is, is praying for Israel, specifically for the return of the people to their homeland. God has said, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. At the end of that time period, you're going to come back. I'll bring you back. And so we're approaching the end, and Daniel begins to pray. As Lord, remember your promise, right? And so the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel, and he gives him a prophecy concerning three things. One, the return of the Jews to their homeland. Two, the Messiah himself. And then three, the end. The end end time, okay, the end of the world. 
He does it using a set called the 77s or 70 weeks. I'm not going to get into all of this. If you want to get detailed, you can go back and watch and listen to the teaching we did last year on this. So 70 weeks. They're approximations. They're not actual, literal 70 weeks. They're, there's an, they're approximation. We believe, most scholars believe, they're, they're symbolic for years, okay? The first 62 of these 77s, they occur after Daniel's time, but before the time of the New Testament, something we call the intertestamental period, okay? If you go back, there's a podcast I did, uh, Daniel chapter 11, and I go through all the details of what concerns those 62 sevens. It's crazy. It's Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes and the Maccabees and Hanukkah and all that kind of stuff. I go through all of that because that's what that period is concerned with, okay? Then, Gabriel says the anointed one is killed. So after all of that, the anointed one is, is, is executed. He's killed. This is the only instance in Scripture where the Messiah is specifically mentioned. All throughout Scripture, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalms, Moses, you have references to the Messiah, but there's no actual like, and the Messiah, the chosen one. This is that instance right here, though. That's what the anointed one is. We know the anointed one to be Jesus, right? So he's the Messiah. He does. Dies, Gabriel says he dies appearing to have accomplished nothing, which makes sense. After the Messiah's killed, what happens? The apostles lock themselves in the room. They're afraid. Hey, we're next, you know? They're like, Jesus did all this stuff, and, and for what? Like, we're, he's dead, and, and we're, we're next type kind of thing. And, and, of course, three days later, he rises again. It all changes. But the feeling was that he had accomplished nothing when he died. Then Gabriel says a ruler will arise who destroys the city. He's talking about Jerusalem here and the temple. Then things get very interesting. There's still seven weeks left. Scholars generally agree these seven weeks, remember weeks are approximations for years, is what we believe, right? But generally they would agree that these seven weeks or seven years are something that we call the tribulation period, where humanity undergoes immense suffering. There's a figure called the Antichrist who rises to power, and at first things are not, you know, they're okay, but they're not great, like evil's rampant, whatever. But it increases, though, as you go further into the period, there's suffering which increases. And it culminates in the return of Jesus. So let me read to you Daniel 9.27 very quickly. What this guy will do. Gabriel says the ruler <clears throat> will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. But after half this time, he'll put an end to the sacrifices and the offerings. And as a climax to all of his terrible deeds, he'll set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. So the ruler can't be, it can't be the Greeks, okay, Antiochus, those guys, it can't be him because the temple has been destroyed by the Babylonians, it hasn't quite been rebuilt just yet. Uh, it can't be him. It can't be the Romans because the Romans are the ones who destroy the temple. They don't make a treaty with the Jews. can't be him. It has to be something in the future. It has to be a future type oriented thing. All right? So the conclusion that most scholars will come to is that it has to be this Antichrist figure who rises and makes an improbable peace with the surrounding nations for this temple to be built. Even Jesus speaks about this himself. So if you go to Matthew chapter 24, <clears throat> Jesus' and his disciples are walking in Jerusalem. It's the week he's going to be executed. He's going to be crucified. It's that final week. And they're walking by, and they're looking at the temple. And the disciples are like, man, this is so great. All these big structures, you know, and this cool. And Jesus says, yeah, they're all, they're, it's not going to be there. It's all going to come down. It's going to come crashing down. None of it's going to be, and they're freaked out, you know. Wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't leave us hanging. So they go outside Jerusalem. They go to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says, okay, what you got? They go, we got two questions. One, when is this temple going to get destroyed? Because you're the one that brought it up, and it's got our, our curiosity. Number two, when are you going to come back? You talk about you're going to be leaving. When will you return? And so Jesus answers both those questions in Matthew 24. Now, he's speaking directly here about the future, not the destruction of the temple. He's going a distant future here in Matthew 24, 15. He says the day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. This is in reference to what? It's in reference to Daniel 9, 27 that I just read to you. 
the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. And then you see this little edit that Matthew puts in, Mark puts it into. It says, reader, pay attention. So Jesus is looking at two things, the near-term destruction. Most of what you read after that statement about pregnant women, you know, on that day trying to run and the destruction, like all that kind of stuff there is in reference to AD 70 and the destruction of the Jerusalem and, and the temple and how terrible it will be for everybody who's trying to flee. But this little insert right here has to deal with the future, a further future down the road. Luke will focus almost exclusively on the temple, but Matthew and Mark, they focus in a little bit here on Daniel, and they have those edits to pay attention. And that's their way of telling their readers, go back and read Daniel so you can better understand what Jesus is speaking about, okay? So Christ's own validation of Daniel 9.27 is important. And it leads to the next major event that will occur. So once you have this peace, there's another event that happens. And this event is that the temple will be rebuilt. So there will be a temple in Jerusalem. There's not one right now, but there will be down the road. Think about the miracle it would, it would, it would take to do this. I mean, right now, if you try, there's no, we wouldn't get anywhere with it. The Dome of the Rock is, is on the Temple Mount or next to it. It's the third holiest site in all of Islam. Do you think you're going to be able to put a temple there or next to it? Good luck. What are you smoking, right? It's not going to happen. That's why it takes an almost supernatural type figure, of which the Antichrist would be, to come in and secure this peace that would allow the temple to be rebuilt. He can do it. He'll pull it off. And it will cause the world just to celebrate and jubilate. Look at what happened right here. It, it, all kinds of great things happen. However, he has ulterior motives. Okay? It's not just out of the goodness of his heart. And Paul writes about this figure in 2 Thessalonians 2. And he says this. For that day, the day of Christ's return, okay, that day will not come. Until so there's a great rebellion against God, and the man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist, is revealed. And this is the one who will bring destruction. And he'll exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. And he'll even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Alright, so I, I don't know specifically, and none of us really do, what this abomination is that is set up. However, if he de he's determined to declare himself God in his temple, that would be abomination in itself, wouldn't it? And so notice he exalts himself, this Antichrist figure, over everyone and everything. There is no faith that is tolerated. Not Islam, not Hinduism, not Christianity, not Judaism, not atheism, nothing. Nothing is tolerated except worship, adoration, recognition of who this figure is. Okay? And so what happens is for those who do not worship and recognize him, there is this massive persecution which take place. But specifically, Daniel says he breaks a treaty with Israel. And if he sets up and says, hey, I'm God in the temple of God, that would be enough, especially for the most zealous of Jewish individuals to want to, hey, we're going to rebel. We're, we're going again. This is not okay. And so worldwide persecution is your next big event that will occur. That's against all peoples for sure, but specifically against Israel, who begins to fight this figure called the Antichrist. And notice it's made three and a half years into this peace, halfway mark. So the world will turn its attention towards Israel, and great persecution and massive warfare follows. Now Ezekiel talks about this. Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes massive armies coming against Israel. And I can't read it today because they're very long chapters. But there's these prophecies concerning a nation called Gog in the region of Magog. And it's, and it's many allies that come with it. There's allies that, that Ezekiel mentions that will come with these, these nations. And they attack Israel once the nation has been restored and the Jewish people have returned to their homeland. Now, we don't have any known historical events which aligns with Gog and Magog. 
You can align all kinds of stuff in Scripture, and we can make it make sense, but this one we don't. And so scholars are very much in agreement on this one. This is the future. This is not right now. This is down the road. In the future, this occurs. Okay? I, we don't know who they are. I, I would, if you, if you feel very certain you know who they are, then you know more than, than a lot of us do, I guess. I, I would not want to make the claim that I know, because we don't. But I'll share with you this. Historically, because they're very ancient names, but historically, they tend to refer to the regions of Turkey, the Caucasus, that would be southern Russia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, that kind of area. Um, that's typically where, where it refers to. Some would say Iran or whatever. That's fine if you want to make that. I, I, I don't like to go that far because Scripture doesn't really say. We don't have, there's a lot of mystery behind it. And again, rule number one is be cautious. We're not going to jump to conclusions. You can have theories, but don't be dogmatic about it. The Greek translation of your Old Testament that's called the Septuagint, it was circulating in the, the day of Jesus. Uh, it identifies a swarm of locusts. This is metaphorical, not literal. But a swarm of locusts who attack Israel in Amos 7.1. And, and they're being led, Amos says, by Gog. Okay, so the idea behind this is that the armies coming against Israel are so numerous that they're compared to locusts who you can't count. They're innumerable. And they devastate entire economies. The world's agricultural back then. It has devastated countries. That's the idea that you get behind these armies. They're just massive. Ezekiel 39, God destroys these nations. And he does it in, in his own fashion. So there's, there's an apocalyptic type destruction. And that's the kind of language that's used here. So in other words, how they're defeated is so miraculous. There's no other explanation that you could use than God intervened and it's supernatural. It's the only way you'd be able to describe how they're defeated. Uh, 39, verse 11 through 16, uh, Ezekiel says it takes seven months to bury all the dead. That's how many uh, enemies are coming against Israel. There's so many, it takes seven months to bury the dead. There's teams of Jews, Ezekiel says, who will go out and they'll mark skeletal remains of the people they missed the first time around. I mean, they just get the idea. It's just a massive defeat. And so Israel's overwhelmed by invaders. God rescues them. He saves them in a very powerful, miraculous way. Here's the final major stage. Okay? What occurs after that, Ezekiel says in 39.29, is an outpouring of God's Spirit upon the people and nation of Israel. So the Holy Spirit's poured out. And there's this restoration of Israel which sees a great number of Jewish individuals who turn to God again for those who weren't following Him. And it leads to this final sign that ushers in the kingdom of God. And here's the final sign. Israel accepts Jesus as their Savior. Okay? Now, Paul speaks about this. He speaks about it in Romans chapter 11. We're going to get to Romans 11 next year, and we'll get to it in much more detail than what I'll go through this morning. But Paul says this. Paul says, So all Israel is going to be saved. As the Scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them, and I will take away their sins. Now, Paul, is, who's also a Jew, is not being a universalist here. He's not saying everyone's going to get saved. What Paul is saying is he's, he's, linking, um, he's linking Isaiah 59.20, which sees God as Israel's Redeemer, to this text, this passage here in Romans 11. The Talmud, which is, which is Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, Talmud states that Isaiah 59 is Messianic. That's how they treat that passage. And Paul is using it in that manner in Romans 11. Okay, And so all Israel here it's a reference that, that is kind of like a smaller number that represents the whole, if you want to put it that way. That's really what Paul is, is referencing here with all of Israel. It's the smaller number which represents the whole. That's kind of how he uses the phrase. So earlier in that chapter, he says that the acceptance of Israel by God will be like having the dead resurrected, like they've returned. So think about the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son, there's, there's two guys, 
And the youngest son goes to his father, goes, hey, I, I want my inheritance now. And the dad says, okay, here it is. He goes off, he squanders his inheritance and while living, and he, he sins against the Lord, against his dad. And then he comes back home, and he expects to be punished and to be turned away. And yet, what does the father do? He welcomes him home. Hey, this son of mine who was dead is now back, and he's alive, and we're going to celebrate. And he brings him in, and there's this great celebration that occurs. And Paul kind of has that picture in his mind that, hey, when you have this point where many of my countrymen begin to turn back to the Lord and they come to know their Savior, it's going to be like that, where they're welcomed back home and God is celebrating and all of heaven's rejoicing. It's going to be this great time. And for Paul and many of your, your apostles and, and New Testament writers, the understanding was this, this, this time period begins to happen towards the end. So what will happen when Christ returns then at the end, when he returns? Well, he's going to judge living and the dead. We know that. Revelation says that. There's this temporary period of about a thousand years where there's relative peace and he reigns and that kind of thing. The devil is subdued. And then towards the end of that thousand year period, the devil makes one more attempt to destroy the nation of Israel and the people of God. He stirs up Gog and Magog one more time. And they try to take Israel out. They fail, and then God establishes his kingdom once and for all. And it's a very literal, physical kingdom of God. In fact, uh, John, uh, the apostle, he writes this in Revelation 21. He says this, Then I, says John, saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth have disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from, from uh, God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne room saying, Look, God's home is now among His people, and He'll live with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them, and He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That sounds like a good place. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city of Jerusalem. That's the reference is Jerusalem, the city. Why? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, says Jesus, are its temple, and the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory, and its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there's no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Alright. Israel, up to the very end, has a part to play. They have a role. God has plans for His people. He's not left them. He's not abandoned them. They are central to what God is going to do in the future. Now, my biggest concern in putting this together, and I fought really hard as I was doing this, was that I'm raising far more questions than I'm answering right now. Uh, and that's, that is the unfortunate thing when you have to be very broad like this. And perhaps down the road, we'll do an entire teaching series, much like we've done with Daniel, like we're doing in Romans, where we are going through just bit by bit. And we might do this when it comes to eschatology, because it, there's just an awful lot there. And my, my, my hope is that I haven't left you with more questions, but you probably have more questions. So what I encourage you to do is this. Ask the questions that you have. Read, study, uh, and, and familiarize yourself with what Scripture says about the end. Now on the other side, you might ask, okay, pastor, I've heard all of this today, which I didn't expect. But what do I do with this? There's a lot of stuff. Like how, how do I live this out? What do I do with this thing? God has plans for Israel which have not been realized yet. And, and what happens with Israel in the future certainly affects us as followers of Jesus. I think we need to be, we need to be aware of that. It provides validation, too, for where we are in salvation history and how close we are to the return of Christ and the kingdom of God. But again, how do you apply it? So here's, here's, here's the first step. Here's the first thing you should do with something like this. The first takeaway. Don't be obsessed over it. Don't try to figure everything out. Certainly read as much as you can try to learn. But you know what the first thing you should do is? Make sure you're ready. Be ready. Be ready for Christ's return. Know what the signs are. Know that God's Word teaches about the end. 
know what's going to occur. Don't obsess over it. But, you know, we outlined today some things which, which will take place for sure. We outlined today some things that we, we think are going to take place. Uh, there, there's no real true, again, there's no true expert in this, this area because there's so much we don't know. I would not trust people who think they're experts on this. Don't do it. There's so much we don't know. But the best thing you can do is to, is to be ready and have your, your life where you're serving the Lord with all your heart. Serve Him, and you'll have nothing to, to worry about. When I was a kid, I heard this kind of stuff. It always freaked me out, man, because I'm like, I am the one who's going to be left here on this planet. What am I going to do? Uh, you know, and, and so I, when I was a teenager, and I began to understand some of this, uh, if you ever read the series Left Behind, some of y'all know that, that series was out when I was in middle school, and I began to read those books, and it always freaked me out even more. <laughs> So I went to my youth pastor. I was like, I am, I, I don't know what to do. Like, why do I, why go to college? Why have a family? Like, it's all going to end like next week, you know? And he's like, hey, calm down. All right, for starters, you should just chill. They've been saying that Christ will come back, says Acts, when he ascends back into heaven. That's, that's, that's not to downplay the return of Jesus. It's just that it's, we have very small, finite lives. God's eternal. God sees a much bigger, longer picture than we do. Don't worry about that. Have your family. Have a career. Live your life. But live it for the Lord. And that's great advice. As long as you're living for the Lord and you're, and you're following after Him, your heart is going to be right. You're going to be ready. And so when Christ does return, he, he, you'll, you'll be ready to rock and roll and ready to go. So make sure you do that. Number two, couple with this, make sure you're reaching other people, man. Minister to people. Reach out to them. Love on them. Care for them. Eternity is a long time. A long time. I, I don't want friends and family to be separated from God. I, I'm not going to you know, browbeat Jesus. I, I don't do that. I don't believe in just shoving Christ in someone's face. Uh, that's, that's not how I do things. Um, if you think you'll convince people that way, good luck. Normally that's not going to work, right? Uh, you can't force people to accept Christ. But what you can do is you can live your life for the Lord. You can let your actions do the talking for you. And you can definitely do that. But how you live your life be the sermon, right? Be the message. And then take advantage of opportunities that arise to share your faith. Because opportunities will happen. And sometimes they happen when you least expect it. So I, I, I may have shared this before, but I'll share it again because it's been a while if I, if I haven't. When I was in college. Uh, I had a lot of friends. A lot of friends who weren't serving the Lord. That's because of the first two years, I wasn't really fully in on God. I was questioning a lot of stuff. I wasn't sure where I was at. And, and, uh, and once I got my life straightened out, I didn't, I didn't like, you know, excommunicate people. Hey, I'm a Christian. You're not, like, take off. Like, I, I didn't do that. I, so I still went to the parties and that kind of thing. Um, now you always knew who I was because I, I was a college student in the era of cargo pants. You know, what I'm saying? like so that was the cool thing back then. And so I had my cherry vanilla Dr Pepper in one hand and cherry vanilla Dr Pepper in my cargo pants. I was that guy at parties, and so that was me. I didn't drink, I didn't do that, and so I, I had my little Dr Peppers and stuff. But I would hang out with folks, and there was this one one event we were having, one party that was being put on, and. Um, there was a friend of ours who had passed away, tragic death, when we were in, we were in school. And so as I'm, I'm, I work, it was kind of this little celebration of life type thing. And one of my other friends, who's, I was a junior at the time, this other friend was a, was a, was a freshman, or oh, he was a sophomore, he was a sophomore. And uh, I mean, he was just all torn up. And he kind of like pulled me aside from everybody. He just, he just was like, hey, I just want to know, like, how, how do you have it all together? Because like, I, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm shaking. He was, he was like, you're really shaking. I don't know what to do. And how do you have it together? And I said, man, I, can I say, I, I don't have it together. Like, I don't have it. I don't have all the answers. Here, here's what I have, dude. I, I said, man, listen, I, I trust that just God's in control. And does, does that explain everything? No. But the fact that I trust that God's in control makes me feel at ease. And I just have peace that anything I'm happening that happens in my life, God, God's got it. God's going to take care of me and people who are around me who, who, you know, who I love and care about. And God, the knowing that God has it is enough for me. And that just, that, just that little bit made a big difference. But he said something else that I've never forgotten. And he said, hey, you know, we, we've all been watching you. 
And a lot of friends. I said, a lot of friends who weren't serving the Lord, for sure. We've all been watching you. Like, we know you're a Christian. Like, this is a real thing for you. And we appreciate that you've never really just, you don't really talk about God very much. Now, I know, some of you in the room are already cringing like, Pastor, you didn't talk about God. What in the world? No, I didn't, I didn't just do it all the time. So how do they figure out that my faith was, was genuine? Because they watched how I lived my life. And so in the good times and the bad times, and things I said and did that I wish I hadn't said and did, they watched all of that, and they thought, okay, maybe there's something here. When he says he follows Jesus, there's something here that seems legitimate, that maybe we haven't seen in other people. And for whatever reason, for that group of folks that I was with in college, it made a major difference in their lives. Some of them are, are serving the Lord today. Some of them aren't. Unfortunately, this guy here I'm talking about is not. But it made the difference. And I'm telling you this morning, listen, <laughs> you can say what you want to say, and you can know all the knowledge you want to know, but if your life doesn't add up, you don't have any credibility. Z, come on up. You don't have to have it all together. You don't got to be Mother Teresa. Okay? But you've got to love God and you've got to love people. And if you can do those things, then you'll make a difference in the lives of people around you in a profound way. So as we get closer to Christ's return, as we get closer to the coming of God's kingdom, the best thing you can do is be ready. Make sure your life is straightened out. Make sure your heart's right with the Lord. That's important. The next best thing you can do, live your faith. Live it out as best you can in a genuine way. No one's asking you to be Jesus. Just live it out the best you can do, and you'll see a difference in people's lives around you. But there is coming a day where Christ will return. And there is coming a day when all the things we've talked about this morning, again, very broad stroke I've painted today, but all the things we've talked about, they'll culminate, it'll happen, it'll occur. There's a lot of other signs we didn't touch on that we didn't get to. Um, but don't be caught unprepared and don't put off getting right and ready with the Lord. I would just make sure that I've settled everything in my life with God now and that I'm going to be good to go moving forward. Bow your heads, close your eyes with me if you're here this morning. Maybe you're here today and say, okay, Pastor, I, I'm, I'm, I, maybe I'm not on board with the whole apocalyptic stuff. Like, I've listened to a lot of this. I don't know about all that. But I will say this. I, I don't know if I want to take a chance on, on not being where I need to be. Because what I do know is that my life kind of feels a little incomplete. I mean, what I do know is that I, I, this Jesus thing, I really need to be, I need to take it serious. I need to probably do something with this. And what I would just tell you is that, hey, don't worry about what's going to happen later. Worry about right now. I, you know, if you're not all in on what's going to happen later, we can talk about that some other time. The most important thing is for you to have your heart right with the Lord. So what I want to do in just a second is I want to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to model it. And you can say it, you know, however you want to say it, whether it's out loud or to yourself. It's really up to you, but you don't have to say it out loud. But I'm going to model what this prayer is going to sound like, and I want you to pray it with me. And we're going to accept Jesus Christ first as our Savior. He's going to save us from our sins. He's going to make us whole and make us right with Him. And then two, He's going to be our Lord. And by being our Lord, we're saying, I'm not in control of my life anymore. And Jesus, you're in control of it. I'm surrendering my life over to you. And Father, I pray right now for those who would, who would be here today. And they just say, man, I, I'm, my heart, I can't say my heart's right. But I can say that I need Jesus. And I want to I make this decision to follow him. And so, Lord, I pray for those individuals who are here today, that, God, you begin to work inside of them. If that's you today, you're just going to say a prayer that goes like this. Say, Lord, I am so sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the things I've done that I know are wrong. They violate your standards for me. They, they go against you. And Lord, I, I'm just here today saying, man, I, I need a new start in my life. I want a fresh start. 
I want to make sure my heart's right. I want to make sure, God, that I'm okay with you in alignment with you. And so this morning, I'm asking for you to be my Savior. Will you save me from my sins? Will you save me from really myself? I mean, I'm not going in the right direction. I want to go in the direction you have planned for me. So will you save me? And not only will you save me, but will you be Lord of my life? Because honestly, like I've done things that I'm not proud of, and I don't really trust myself to lead me in the right direction. I might think I know where I'm going, but God, it hasn't worked out so well. I want to follow you. Will you lead me, and will you guide me in the direction I need to go in? I want to surrender everything I have over to you. And from this day forward, Lord, I'm going to commit myself to doing all that I can to follow and serve and obey you. I want my life to be put in your hands. Be my Lord and my Savior today. Father, for the rest of us who are believers, for the rest of us, God, who maybe we didn't think much about Israel and its place in, in history and salvation history. Maybe, maybe, God, we look at the signs and things around us right now, how the world's kind of going, and we're like, yeah, something is brewing, something is happening, and I'm just not sure what it is. Lord, I pray that we would, you would just work in our hearts and remind us today that whatever time we do have, it's, it's never long. It's always short. Your word says life is like a breath. It's like a vapor. It's short. So, Lord, may our hearts always be ready. And we be found, God, just ready, serving you, loving you, following after you. And, Lord, I pray that our, our faith would be taken to the next level, that, God, our faith, we live our faith out in, in a profound way that impacts people around us. Remind us, God, we don't have to have it all together. We just got to be following you and doing what we can to live our faith out, that others will see that. We're going to trust your Holy Spirit to impact other people's lives, to work through us and how we live our own. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be ready and be found, God, living for you uh, as we experience these days that we have here on this planet Earth. And, Lord, when your kingdom does come, well, what a great time that'll be. We celebrate and worship with you forever. We sang this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We sang it together as a church body, but Lord, one day we're going to join with those angels who are singing those very choruses in your throne room. We're looking forward to that day where there's no more pain and no more tears, no more sorrow, because the old is gone and the new has come. And so Lord, we just say come. Thank you for who you are, for what you're going to do, for the future we have in you. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.